Thank you, Michael. And uh, I'd like to invite any kids uh, interested in coming forward for a children's message this morning uh, to just come up and gather right here around uh, the table. Anyone who's interested. Maybe if I bring this out, it'll get a few more. <laughs> I just wanted to see who would come up before I got this out. And now there's some running over. Yeah. A little more excited. You guys can grab a piece of candy if you want. You just have to do me a favor and not eat it right away because you have to make sure it's okay that your parents have that kind of candy. I don't want to get in trouble for giving you the wrong kind of candy. I if you want to reconsider your choice, you can. You can swap it out. Yeah. Skittles are way better than Swedish fish. Good work. There were some Skittles. I don't know if there are any more. Everyone got some? You guys like candy? Yeah, judging by the fact that you came running up. Uh, why, why do you like candy? It's delicious. It's delicious? What makes it delicious? It's good for you. It's good for you. <laughs> I think there's a few people, including your dentist, who might disagree. Um, it tastes good, right? Mm -hmm. Why does it taste good? Anyone know what the main sugar. ingredient sugar. is? Sugar, exactly. You got it. Did you know? Sugar. Yeah, fake sugar. You're right. Did you know that there's actually sugar in all the food that we eat, though? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're all smarter than I was at your age then. Yeah, exactly. That's the better kind of sugar than what's in candy. Why, why do you think that, uh, that we need sugar in our food? What does it do for us? Um, it makes us healthy. Makes you healthy? What else? If you ate a whole bunch of this candy, what, what do you think would happen? You'd be super active. You'd get super hyper, right? You'd save it in your closet. Again, you're smarter than I was when I was your age then. So, I mean, that's exactly, that's exactly right, though. Sugar gives us energy, and that's why we eat food, right? Because it gives us energy. That's why um, every morning we have breakfast, lunch, dinner, okay? And yeah, if you have a lot of candy, it gives you kind of a, a quick burst of energy. Now, that's actually why I wanted to have you come forward. We're, we're going to have a meal a little bit later. And yeah, what's it called? Anyone know? Communion. communion. Exactly. And we actually believe as Christians that communion gives us energy as well. It doesn't give us the same kind of energy that like a full meal does because we actually don't eat a lot of food when we come forward for communion. But actually what we believe about Christian or as Christians is that the same way that our, our food, our daily meals give us energy to live in our day-to-day -day lives, we actually believe that through the Holy Spirit, God God gives us spiritual energy to live as his people. That's why we come forward to this table and have this meal together as Christians every couple of weeks and every couple of months. And so that's something that I want you to remember. That's why I wanted you to come forward, hand out some candy. The same way that you get energy from things like candy or a meal, we get energy to live as God's people. And he spiritually nourishes and strengthens us through this meal. You guys can make your way back to your seats. Remember, ask your parents if that's an okay piece of candy. If not, I'll have this after the service and you can uh, exchange it for something else. And speaking of which, um, I'm not sure if I'll be doing this every single week, but I do plan to have this with me after uh, worship uh, going forward um, as often as I can. And so any kids uh, who would like a piece of candy after worship, you can come and visit me, uh, say hi, and grab a piece of candy, um, even if I'm talking to one of the adults. So, And uh, if the occasional adult wants to grab one too, that's okay as well. So.
Um, I'm going to have us turn uh, in our Bibles this morning to our text, which is John chapter 11, verses 38 through 44. And it's John chapter 11, verses 38 to 44. And uh, we're uh, concluding our sermon series uh, this week that we've been in for the last uh, number of weeks, actually. We've been um, looking at the seven signs that the uh, gospel writer John records in his gospel. So he, uh, he doesn't refer to them the same way that the other gospel writers do. Um, he doesn't talk about Jesus' miracles. Instead, he talks about his signs. And as we've said throughout the series, the reason for that is because John isn't just interested in talking about the acts of power that Jesus uh, performs in his miracles. He wants us to see their significance and the meaning of what they tell us about who Jesus is. Uh, and so that's why he refers to them as signs, because just like a sign points us ahead to something, John wants us to see what these signs point us to with Jesus. So John chapter 11, verses 38 through 44, this is the final of the seven signs, the raising of Lazarus. And the text says, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the dead man's sister, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. And Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of these people standing here, so they might also know that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out with strips of linen wrapped around his hands and feet and a cloth around his face. Take off the grave clothes, Jesus said to the people who were there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, back when I was in high school, um, a friend of mine, Jason, got into an accident on the highway. Uh, he was driving down 8094 uh, near where I grew up, south of Chicago, when another car merged right on top of him. Uh, he'd been in their blind spot, and so they didn't see him, and they just started coming over into his lane. And when Jason realized what was happening, he very quickly jerked the wheel over to the right in order to get into the lane uh, next to the car. Uh, and for a second, it seemed like that was going to, to work out. Um, he was going 70 miles an hour, so he was fast, but the other car, it didn't hit him. He'd gotten out of the way, and it seemed like he'd been able to keep the car under control. Unfortunately, then he fishtailed, and he ended up swerving right back at the car that had merged on him, hit them head on, flew across two lanes of traffic with them until they slammed into the median that divided their side of the highway from the other side. Um, fortunately, everyone in both cars was fine. In fact, everyone walked away without a scratch. When the police showed up to take the accident report, though, uh, they ended up putting the blame on Jason. You see, while he knew that it was the other car's fault, since they were the ones who had started the whole thing by merging on top of him, all of the other drivers who had been around them on the road and had stopped to assist them hadn't seen that. And so the first thing that any of them had noticed, understandably, I think, was when Jason's car lost control and fishtailed back into the other vehicle. And so to, so to them, as witnesses to the accident, it seemed like the whole thing had started when Jason lost control, not before that when the other car had merged on him. And so the police cited Jason as the at-fault driver. Now, fortunately, a few months later, when he had his court date uh, to contest the ticket, the officer who had, who had written the ticket didn't show up, and so at the very least, he didn't have to pay the fine. The point, though, 
is that the fault for the accident was a matter of perspective. To Jason, it was clear that it was the other car's fault since they'd merged on top of him. But to everyone else, it seemed like it was his fault because that was the first thing that any of them had seen was his car hitting the other one. Perspective determined what people believed about what had happened. And truth be told, the same thing is actually true about Jesus. You know, there are a lot of different ideas out there about Jesus, different ideas about who he was, what he said and did, what he didn't say or didn't do, which parts of it are true, which parts aren't. You know, for instance, some people think Jesus never really even existed. You know, like Hercules or, or Xena, he's just a, a mythic figure, uh, another mythic character handed down to us in stories and fables, but he was never an actual historical figure. Others believe that Jesus did exist, but that his legend has outgrown the facts. So similar to King Arthur or Guinevere, uh, they believe Jesus might have been based on an actual historical figure, but there's no way of knowing, they say, which parts of the story are true and which parts are, are fiction anymore. And so it's probably best to assume that most of what we know about him is, is more tall tale than truth. Still others believe that most of what we know about Jesus today probably is true. They believe he was a prophet. They believe he was a man of God. They might even believe in things like the virgin birth, his miracles, and maybe even the resurrection. But they don't believe that he was the son of God. They don't think that he was divine, at least not to start. They don't think that he was the second person of the Trinity. In fact, they don't even think that there is a Trinity. That's one step too far for them to see Jesus that way. Mormons, Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, and others, they all hold Jesus in reverence to some degree or another, but seeing him as God's son, the Christ, the savior of the world, that's one step too far. And then there are those for whom it isn't too far, for whom it isn't too much, for whom, while it maybe is sometimes hard to believe, it's all true. Jesus did exist. And what we know of him is indeed more fact than fiction. He was a prophet, a teacher, a man of God. Yes, but he was also more than that. He was and still is the Son of God, the Messiah, the promised Redeemer who would renew and restore the world. You see, like different people watching a car accident, it's a matter of perspective. Depending on where you are and where you're coming from, what you see might look different. What you think, what you conclude about Jesus, what you believe is or isn't true about him, to some degree it's determined by your vantage point. And nowhere is that more clear than here in this text. Let's set the scene here. In the chapter just before this one, in John chapter 10, uh, that chapter ends with, with some of the Jewish leaders and some of the Jewish people in Jerusalem trying to kill Jesus. And so for their own safety, Jesus and his disciples uh, flee across the Jordan River, actually uh, close to the place where John the Baptist would have had his ministry a few years before. And so as a result, this chapter, chapter 11, opens with Jesus sheltering in the wilderness, away from Jerusalem and away from the people who want to kill him. But eventually, word comes to him that his friend, Lazarus, is sick and dying. He's the brother of Mary and Martha, who were also close friends of Jesus, and so he decides to go to their town, to Bethany. The only problem is that Bethany isn't all that far from Jerusalem, only about a mile or two. 
And so it's right back in that area, in that region, where people were just trying to kill Jesus in the previous chapter. And so naturally, his disciples decide to remind him of that. And in verse 8 of this chapter, they say to him, Rabbi, just a short while ago, the Jews there tried to kill you, and yet you're going back? But Jesus is determined. Yes, he tells them, he's going back. Despite the danger, despite the threat, despite the fact that it could get him killed, Jesus is going to go see Lazarus in Bethany. Just as a side note, uh, by the way, but after Jesus tells his disciples that, that he's going back, verse 16 records an interesting reaction from one of them. Um, Jesus has just told his disciples that he's going to return to Bethany when John writes, Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that that we may die with him. Now, Thomas is probably best known to most of us as Doubting Thomas, right? I mean, he got that unfortunate nickname after he refused to believe that the other disciples had seen Jesus risen from the dead after his resurrection. In fact, he said to to the other disciples, unless I see for myself and unless I put my finger where the nail holes were and my fist in his side, I will never believe. And yet I think it's important to remember that Thomas was also apparently capable of great faith. After all, here in this chapter, he's willing to go so far as to even die with Jesus. And I bring that up because personally, I've for many years found that to be a great comfort. To know that even Jesus' own disciples, who we often hold up in Scripture as these great examples of faith, were sometimes a mixed bag, right? Capable of great faith, but also great doubt. After all, I'm assuming most of us have experienced those two things at different points as well. There are times when we experience great faith in our own walk with Jesus and other times when we experience doubt as well. And so I think part of the reason why John includes verse 16 here is to remind us that even if we're a mixed bag too, just like Jesus' original disciples, we can still be one of his disciples as well. Anyway, they end up going back to Bethany. Despite the danger, Jesus and his disciples return there. They go to see Lazarus and his sisters The problem is that by the time they get there, it's actually too late. Lazarus has died. Mary and Martha are distraught, and so their friends and family members have have gathered with them to mourn, and the whole trip seems pointless. In fact, some of the people who have come to comfort Mary and Martha even say as much. They hear about Jesus' late arrival and say, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? In other words, too little, too late, Jesus. What's done is done. In fact, even Mary and Martha, who are friends and disciples of Jesus themselves, seem to say the same thing. At different points in this chapter, both of them say to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You see, it seems like everyone in this text believed that Jesus could have healed Lazarus. From their perspective, that didn't seem outside the realm of possibility. Even the people who seemed kind of skeptical of Jesus apparently thought that he could have made Lazarus well if only he had been there in time. But not anymore, right? I mean, Lazarus is dead now. And no matter what other miracles Jesus might be capable of, no matter what else he's done, no matter what other signs he's performed in his ministry, raising a man from the dead isn't one of them. It's just not possible at least not from their perspective. And yet that's exactly what John wants to do here. He wants to shift our perspective. He wants to adjust our expectations. 
Whether we're longtime believers in Jesus, hearing about him for the first time, or somewhere in between, John wants to show us, as his readers, that there is more to Jesus than what we might initially think when we encounter him. In fact, that's what we've been seeing throughout this whole series. As we said, John records these signs, all seven of them in his gospel, to help us see who Jesus truly is. He wants to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Eyes and ears of faith. That's the key here. As one commentator I read on this passage put it, everyone there in Bethany, believing or not, would see this miracle. But Jesus is promising a sight of the glory. The crowd would see the miracle, but only believers would see its real significance. That's what John wants us to see too. He wants us to see the significance of these signs, the significance of this sign. And what significance is that? That Jesus is capable of more than just healing. He's capable of giving life. Now that's actually a huge theme in this gospel. We haven't really talked about that so far in this series, this theme of life. But that idea uh, and that concept of life, it actually comes up over and over and over again in the gospel of John. For instance, right in the opening verses of the book, John begins talking about Jesus by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without, without him nothing was made that has been made. And then here's the key. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Then there's John 3.16, right? Maybe the most famous verse in all of Scripture, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have what? Eternal life. Maybe most applicable to our text today, though, is what Jesus says in John chapter 5. Uh, in, that, in that chapter, John, uh, Jesus is having a, a debate with some of the Jewish uh, leaders, and they're challenging his authority to heal and, and teach on the Sabbath. And so Jesus answers them in a number of different ways, but at one point he says this, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him the authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. How perfectly does that passage foreshadow our text for this morning? A time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The point is that this theme of life is all over this book. One commentator I read put it like this. He said, We should not overlook the fact that this gospel has a good deal to say about life from the prologue on. What John wants us to see is that Jesus gives life. And that's certainly true here in this text, isn't it? Eventually, after some more conversation, a bit of controversy, and some very famous weeping in the shortest verse of the Bible, Jesus comes to Lazarus' tomb in verse 38. He tells the people who accompany him there to, to take away the stone. There's some hemming and hawing about that, some debate over whether or not it's, it's going to stink too much. Finally, they end up doing it. 
Jesus prays, and then we read this. When he had finished praying, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And it's in that moment, just like that, that Jesus is, is no longer just some teacher, no longer just some rabbi, no longer just some traveling preacher. He's not even just a miracle worker, you know, someone who can feed a few thousand people or, or heal a blind man's sight. All of a sudden, he's more than that. He can raise the dead. He can call people out of the grave. He can give life. Not just physical life, though. Like we said, everyone who watched this miracle would have been able to see that. Okay, Jesus can raise people from the dead. As extraordinary as that is, that much is now fact. For the people who witnessed it, that was now beyond dispute. What it meant, though, is an entirely different matter. Again, to see that, to see the significance of this sign, they would need a new perspective. And that's what John wants us to see here too, what all of scripture wants us to see, in fact. He wants us to see that Jesus didn't just come to do a bit of teaching, just to work a few miracles, or even to do something as spectacular as raise someone from the dead. No, John wants us to see that there is more to Jesus than that. He wants us to know that Jesus came to give us more than just physical life. He came to give us spiritual life too. Eternal life, as John calls it. Life with Jesus, life with our Father, life the way he meant us to have it. You see, without Jesus, we're dead. In fact, that's actually the way that Scripture talks about us. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And pre-Jesus, that's what we were. That was our status. That was our state of being. That was our situation. We were dead. I remember vividly one of my seminary professors pounding that into us one day in class. He said to us, Until you realize that you're hopeless, that there is nothing, nothing at all, that you can do to earn God's favor, that you are dead in your sins until you really grasp that you will never understand your faith, you will never understand the gospel, and you will, you will never understand Jesus Christ. He said, we like to think that isn't the case. We like to think that we're at least a little bit alive when Jesus comes to us. You know, the situation isn't, isn't good. Maybe we're really sick. Maybe we're in the hospital. Maybe we're even on life support. But we don't think that we're dead yet. And so all we need Jesus to do is just enter into our lives and do a bit of healing. Like the people who had come to mourn Lazarus, we have no problem believing that Jesus is capable of that. My professor went on, though. He said, we like to think that way because we want at least a bit of the credit. We don't like the idea that we don't contribute anything to our salvation. Like literally every other area of our lives, our grades, our relationships, our jobs, our finances, any other achievements we have, we like to think that we've earned at least a bit of our standing before God. We put in the work, and so we get what we deserve. But, he asked us, and I will never forget this, what can a dead person do to save themselves? Indeed, what could Lazarus have done to make himself alive again before Jesus shows up here? Nothing, right? 
That's what we need to see. That's the perspective we need to have. That's the lens that we need to see Jesus through. That's what all these signs John records point us to. Jesus isn't just some mythic figure. He's not just a somewhat historical legend. He's not just a teacher or a prophet or a miracle worker. He's not even just a healer. He's the very Son of God, the Lord and King of all creation, the source and giver of life itself. That's how we need to see him, the one who has come to give us life, and not just physical life, mind you, but spiritual life, eternal life. And that brings us to the gospel. After all, Lazarus isn't the only one who would die, pass through the tomb, and then be raised to life. Jesus did it too. The difference, though, is that unlike Lazarus, he did it for us. Sinless he came, the Son of God made man. He lived among us, taught us, showed us his Father's will, but he knew we couldn't do it. He knew that we were dead in our sin. And so in grace and mercy, he took our place. He suffered for our sins. He died the death that we deserved, and then he rose to the new life that we couldn't earn. As Jesus puts it elsewhere in this gospel, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. You see, unless we're made alive by Jesus, the real significance, work, and power of who he is will remain hidden from, from us. I mean, the dead can't see, right? Only the living can. Understanding Jesus to simply be a good man, a teacher, even a supernatural miracle worker isn't enough. That'll only keep us dead, only keep us in the grave. But seeing Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God himself, that has the power to give us life both now and forevermore. And it's that life, that hope, that Savior that we trust in now and always. That's the point of this sign. In fact, it's the point of this whole book, something John makes clear right at the end in the second to last chapter. You see, in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John writes this. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. In fact, in the last chapter, he goes on to say, if I were to record all of them, all the books in the world would not be able to contain them. But then he says this, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's what these signs reveal. That's why John writes them down and shares them with us. That's what they point us to. That's what they tell us about Jesus. They tell us that he's the Son of God, that he's our Savior and Messiah, and that it's in his name, in his name alone, that we have life. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that you have given us life. That in and of itself is grace enough. We don't deserve the life that you have given us. Because of our sin, we became dead, and yet through Christ you have given us life again, new life. Lord, we thank you for that grace on top of grace. Help us to live in light of that grace each and every day of our lives. We pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. 
Amen.